Hello, welcome back to the Milk Road podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm so happy to let you know that a terrific, dear old friend of mine is here with us today. Tom Grant and I have known one another for quite a while, since the early 1990s. Tom started trading currencies for Citibank in Frankfurt when I worked there for a technology company. Tom went on to become one of the largest institutional block traders of currencies in London. He provided liquidity for the largest and most aggressive hedge funds in the world through extremely volatile events, like when sterling devalued, the Asia currency crisis, and the global financial crisis. So Tom has crafted the rare skill of understanding how people behave in global currency markets when there's a lot of stress. After Citibank, Tom went to Oxford, where he studied and earned a master's in applied mathematics. Then in 2015, Tom founded an investment management company. That company applied machine learning to invest in the consumer credit space. Tom successfully grew that as a startup and then arranged its sale to a Swiss group. These days, Tom is building a new kind of blockchain-focused startup in Boston called GrantFin. So, Tom, welcome to the New Milk Road podcast. I'm so keen to hear about your journey in blockchain and crypto since you left the traditional currency markets, and I really appreciate the chance to ask you some questions about your valuable new cutting-edge work. So let's start off with an easy question. How's it going in Boston this morning? Adam, first of all, it's a real honor and pleasure to be here with you. Uh, Boston's great. We're in the middle of our summer. Uh, we have a cold winter here, so the summers are lovely. Uh, and I guess the big news this morning as we record this, um, we're in the midst of seeing uh, the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, uh, expected to resign any minute now. So a lot of news, but all good. And great to be with you here this morning. Yeah, good. I'm glad to hear that. I can... Uh... When I saw that news pop out, I just remembered thinking or started thinking like, you know, you spent a lot of time uh, trading currencies in London. That type of news would have had you have a pretty busy morning now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny uh, as a look back on how currency market markets evolved, you know, um, those were the days when the markets were not electronic. There was a lot more word of mouth. Uh, news traveled quickly, but in a slightly different way. Um, but, you know, as, as we look back on those days, you know, it was the intersection of, of sort of geopolitics, um, economics and markets. So it was a fascinating time to be trading currencies. You know, this type of news still moves markets. I think the real news will be when they get a new prime minister installed and, and, and hear a little more about those policies. Uh, but no, you're exactly right. And it's always fun to see these changes in, um, in, in uh, the, you know, the global politics. I think the UK is unique because it can kind of, it comes at a surprise. Um, the US, we have a four-year term, at least we're supposed to. Uh, sure. In the UK uh, and a lot of the world, you know, you can have these surprise changes and it is quite exciting. Yeah, good. Well, so in, in story model, which we've talked a little bit about, you know, the hero's journey, you know, uh, going on a journey, uh, it's the same kind of inciting incident pull. Is that what pulled you into crypto and blockchain that pulled you into uh you know, uh, dollar mark originally, you know, the currency markets, like, is this, do you see this as a new, uh, as a very similar type of uh, currency that you're trading and working in and blockchain? And what, what was it that pulled you in there the first time and, and again now? Yeah, great question. You know, I think it was um, the former chairman of Citibank who coined it, the phrase, we don't trade currencies, we trade information. Um, in other words, you know, as new information comes out, it reprices assets. Um, and so when I initially got into currency trading, to me, that was fascinating. It was fascinating to see how information traveled. It was fascinating to see how this information was then uh, brought into pricing. Uh, and it was fascinating to see how, how, how the, you know, the, the, the equity markets, the bond markets, and the currency markets all kind of had unique characteristics. Um, equity markets are more regulated, um, and, and news tended to hit currency markets almost instantly, whereas it did take some time to go into, into equity markets sometimes. But, you know, when I look at kind of what drove me and some of my thinking back then, where I am now, um, you know, it was a fascinating time to be involved in global markets, to be in, in, in Europe and, and the UK and, and, and Germany. Um, I, really, I really enjoyed that time. It was challenging. It was fun. It was exciting. Um, and the markets evolved. The big change to, to how... 
uh, markets transact now is really how much computerization has, has taken over. Um, you know, you look at electronic trading back then, it was few and far. Now it's almost 100%. So that's the big change. You know, in 2015, when I started my last company, to me, it was quite apparent that either you're going to get the, the get technology to be a tailwind or it's going to be a headwind. If you're trying to fight against the computers, be quicker, more efficient, it's hard. Um, but when you get those tailwinds behind you, it is really interesting. And I saw a gap. Um, you know, a chance to really bring some technologies to the market where we could use a, a statistical modeling, machine learning model to better allocate consumer um, money into consumer credit to, to effectively do under, underwriting. Understanding these behaviors, understanding how we could get in, get in front of this to me was a huge challenge. And it was fun to create a company there. Um, and it was a lot of hard work, a lot of, a lot of, you know, trial and error, much like, you know, the old days of, of trading dollar mark. Uh, and you learned hard lessons, but it was fun. It was exciting. Um, but to me, um, every 10, 20 years, you have new breakthroughs and, and the efficiency of using technology to make our lives easier, um, to give the consumer or the, um, the market a better offering um, was something that was important to me. So I founded the company in 2015 with the idea, you know, very similar to my initial days in, in markets was I can, use, I can use this tool to be quicker, more efficient, uh, and make better decisions. Um, and in the den, in, at the end of the day, we were able to really build something there. Uh, and I was fortunate to be able to exit last year. Yeah, that's terrific. I'm so glad to hear that. That's a great perspective. And uh, it kind of it reminds me of uh, my understanding of maybe what's happening at the macro level, which is all of this incredible experience that you have from the wholesale markets and that we got from working in the wholesale markets it's like it's kind of drip feeding into the retail consumer side, you know, so, you know, bit by bit. Uh, do you know what I mean when I say that? Like, you know, now we're seeing, you know, back the Super Bowl was like trade crypto. Like you didn't see, you know, advertisements for people to trade dollar yen way back when, right? And all these yeah, tools, yeah. and all these tools that people can start using, almost if they're wholesale traders. Does that sound wrong, or what do you think? No, you're exactly right. And I think that the internet really changed a lot of how markets evolve and what the consumer has access to. You know, back in the day, professional traders had access to a lot of very expensive systems. We had Bloomberg, we had automatic um, automated settlement. We had a lot of systems and, and, and news information to really give us an edge. Um, and you needed to have that. You know, you had a lot, a lot of money at stake. You had, you know, the the, the importance of having good access to, um, to news and to um, trading tools was really, really important for us. Um, here we are, you know, fast forward. Um, I think that throughout the 90s, as the internet rolled out, you had a lot of day traders. They used somewhat similar information to start trading yeah. equities and other assets. Yeah. Uh, and now you can almost do the same in bond markets. You can almost do the same in currency markets. So, you know, a lot of those tools are now um, either one, uh, out there in a free format somehow, or two, um, you know, there's a lot of services which are much more discount oriented that allow day traders and, 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 and novice traders to get access to some pretty high-end systems. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, where these two um, areas collide, you know, I think if you look at um, getting the information is one thing, but two, um, you know, most of what we use today in terms of payment rails was built in the 70s and 80s. Um, so, the way that we transact, the way that we send money, the way that we receive money, certainly in the US, this was all built from many years ago. So it's somewhat outdated. So some part of FinTech is bringing um, that information to the, uh, to the, to the, to the, to the uh, more casual traders. And some of this is bringing more efficient ways of moving money, cheaper ways, more efficient ways of using rails that will allow um, individuals, companies, and small businesses um, to borrow money, to, to lend money, to invest money, to make payments and receive payments. And that, that to me is the next generation of FinTech. Um, and a lot of what DeFi is bringing, bringing to the table um, is these more efficient payment and, uh, and, 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 and money market quote sort of rails, um, which I think are really important as we look to the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the cost of moving money uh, is... Um... Uh, has been expensive for a long time. That's for sure. So are you doing, uh, I, I remember last, one of the times we spoke over the last 12 months or whatever, you were spending some time in Latin America. 
are you a little bit more focused on that time zone than you are the time zone I'm in these days because uh, you know it might be easier to access with COVID or or what are you um, uh, geography wise? What are you up to these days? Yeah, no, good question. So um, I took some time off in in um, first quarter of this year and took my family for a vacation down to Argentina. Mm -hmm. um, one, I was curious to sort of see how a country like Argentina, which has an enormous spread between their official exchange rate and sort of the market exchange rate. And that's really a result of the government putting in specific rules around where and how you can transact um, Argentine, Argentine pesos against other currencies. Um, but it was fascinating for me. One, it was, it was a wonderful trip with my family. We spent some time um, fly fishing in Patagonia. We spent some time having a great um, visit to Buenos Aires, which if you've never been, it's one of the most amazing cities in the world. But for me, it was a chance to uh, to learn a little bit more about how DeFi and what type of, uh, of, of you know, by the way, let me just take a step back and, and mention that this crypto and decentralized finance, um, mm -hmm. some people use those two interchangeably. Um, to me, DeFi is really about the movement of money through um, smart contracts and or uh, these cryptographic currencies. Uh, and when you think about crypto, a lot of what you're thinking about is buying coins or Bitcoin um, or the many, many other coins out there with the idea that these coins will go up in value. Um, what we've seen over the, over the last three years has been interesting because we saw 2020, um, the beginning of COVID, um, if you watched what the G7 central banks did, they put it, they poured an enormous amount of liquidity into the global market. So we, we, we reckon around 8 trillion went in, which, one, it's quite inflationary. Obviously, it was a great thing if you were worried about meeting your, your, your payroll or having liquidity problems at that time when we weren't sure how bad COVID would get or how long we would be, be in lockdown. But the important thing is that this, this was an enormous amount of money that came into the market. And in many cases, that money had to find a home. And for many people, it was buying, buying cryptocurrencies. And Bitcoin was a huge beneficiary. So we were around eight to 10,000 a coin in March of 2020. Uh, and and it, you know, a year and a half later, it was, it was up in the mid 60s. So you know, it was a six times plus um, return. Uh, and now as we see inflation has picked up globally, you know, central banks are pulling out all that liquidity they put in. Uh, and additionally, we're seeing rates tighten. So funny enough, a lot of this sort of free money as we saw it, is coming out. So a lot of these assets, which went up aggressively, whether they be um, NFTs or other artwork in some cases, or crypto, they've come back down to earth a little bit. So from my perspective, we're not out there trying to pick the next coin or um, buy Bitcoin and hope it goes up a lot. You're we're not really looking. At, you're not doing that. You are. No, we're really looking looking at the utility that DeFi will and is bringing to to global markets and to the the the. Um, lending markets, the borrowing markets, and and the the uh, and the payment rails. Um, so, right. you know, from our perspective, you know, is there a time zone which is most important? We're not so much focused on time zones, but you know, if you're looking at a stable coin and you live in the U.S., it's not a lot of value there. You might as well just use a credit card or write a check or whatever yeah. you would like to. Yeah. But uh, for places like Argentina, um, where they don't have access to a non-inflationary, and for for what it's worth. Argentina's had 50% plus inflation for a number of years. Um, anyone that's getting a paycheck is worried how they can maintain their, their purchasing power. Um, and this is not unusual for a lot of the emerging market economies. So mm -hmm. we think of, of parts of Africa, parts of, of, uh, of Latin America, and even parts of Asia are ripe for better solutions uh, and more efficiency that DeFi can bring. So we're not so time, time uh, in terms of the time zones we're looking at, it's less about where you are, but about what we can do to make your life better. Yeah. All right. That's really helpful to hear. Yeah. It sounds like my understanding commercially, the opportunity is about building infrastructure uh, that can support uh, more efficient transactions. That's what I hear you talking yeah. about. So, you know, this, when people hear the, the term infrastructure, sometimes they think, oh, a brand new everything. <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of what people um, referred to, to DeFi as, as, as sort of Legos that you can keep building on each other. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when, when I was around seeing how the internet was evolving, um, mm -hmm. you know, every day there's a new website, 
every day there was a new way to access your email or to send something, receive something. Um, it was a lot of trial and error. A lot of, a lot of companies like AltaVista or, or AOL, they had great runs and then they didn't. Um, so it was a lot of speculation. But one thing we always knew about the evolution of the internet is that even though we didn't know which companies would be the most valuable, we knew it would change how we did our daily lives. We knew it would change how we bought a, an airplane ticket, which back in the day, we had to go to a, to a, a travel agency and actually in-person purchase it. Um, you know, and suddenly it's all about, you know, you simply go online, you can see information, you can transact. So we think DeFi is going to do a similar thing to how we live our lives um, in different ways. Um, I think Web3, um, is going to usher in a new way of, of data, um, you know, where data is held and who can monetize that data. Um, and so it's better for the consumer. Um, we think that cheaper, more efficient, more simplistic ways of, of um, sending, receiving money, of accessing, borrowing, um, accessing a lot of credit um, against your, some of your assets, whether they be crypto or real world assets, it's going to gradually change how we live our lives. Um, and to some extent, one thing that's important to think about here and it's a double-edged sword, is the concept of, of where your assets are custodied. Um, in the more traditional world, we tend to leave our assets with a, if you have a, a stockbroker in, in Europe or the US, you usually have it custodied at a major custody firm um, who, who ensure your assets are there, they're not lost, they're not misplaced, and they're not sold without your permission. Um, DeFi brings another level of freedom but also uh, of, of, of potential um, uh, difficulty. If, you're, if your assets are custodied in your wallet, you lose the password to that wallet, you accidentally send those to the wrong address, you can't get them back. So there's another level of, of complexity, but also it allows the unbanked to have a way of sending and receiving money, of saving money. And for those in countries that do have high inflation, uh, DeFi allows them to hold some of their assets or all of their assets in a currency or an asset that will not simply uh, inflate away. Um, obviously, Bitcoin has some volatility, but stable coins, which are coins which are pegged um, to the dollar or to the euro or to another, another uh, fiat currency. And there's also uh, uh, coins out there that are pegged to uh, assets like gold. Um, but these allow investors and uh, for that matter, um, individual uh, consumers to be able to hold their assets and uh, in, a, in a way that sort of their, uh, their, their, their wallet, uh, not paying a bank fee, not, not, not having to deal with um, uh, the, the traditional bank rules, uh, and at the same time to have the freedom to send and receive money as they, as they see fit, mm -hmm. uh, we, we think is a, a game changer for much of the emerging market world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that... Uh... I mean, what you said earlier about changing behavior, right? And you didn't know which website that you would use, but everybody, you know, in the know understood that you'd be buying your airplane ticket online. You didn't know who the winner was going to be, but you knew that the behavior was going to change, right? And uh, in a way, kind of what what um, what you could call the journey of of getting a ticket. You knew that was going to change, right? So, um, you know, with um, with the area that you're focused on next, uh, I'd love to hear as much as you're uh, comfortable to share. Do you, um, uh, do you see that concept of network effect that, uh, that we kind of, you've heard about and we talked a little bit about earlier? You know, I think Web3 is kind of counting on network effect where more participants in, um, uh, in the marketplace like all the money isn't going to the single platform. There's actually more uh, network effect flowing between the participants. Uh, that's my understanding of, of, of the holy, a holy grail in Web3. Does that sound wrong to you? You're exactly right. For any new technology to take off, you need that network effect. Um, that network effect you know, allows you to share what you're doing with your buddy, um, suddenly your buddy or you realize you can um, access a more efficient way of sending and receiving money, of sending out a bill, of accessing liquidity, all these things you need a, a some form of network effect. 
Um, what is unique about Web3 and, and the DeFi world is that it is decentralized. In other words, you're not going to a, a specific bank or a specific entity to transact. You're using a system uh, or a blockchain uh, that is, that is uh, held on many, many computers. It is a technology that has been around for many years, but it's only recently we've used this concept of consensus to build the the trust aspect. Um, you know, the concept of digital money is not new. The challenge when you anything this digital, you can copy it and then you can replicate it, and then you could, in theory, resend or respend your digital money. Um, the concept of of what Bitcoin has brought to us is that concept of, of consensus uh, and creating trust through consensus, which allows to ensure that when that money is spent. Uh, it can only be spent once. When that money is taken from your wallet and sent somewhere else, it can only uh, go through that process once. Uh, and that's part of keeping these payment rails safe and secure. But you're right that you need to have the network effect. If we all have different, um, you know, are trying to use different coins, different different uh, chains, different blockchains, it's hard to get any real, real um, sort of standardization there and it's hard for a system to grow without getting a lot of a lot of users on one platform. Um, when I say platform, it doesn't mean it needs to be a Google platform or a a, um, a Bank of America platform, but rather um, a a technology um, or blockchain where we can all use it. We can all make uh, make use of of the efficiencies there, um, but a decentralized way of of us transacting. So networks are really important. Uh, and we'll see that pick up. You know, we're seeing some ways of using um, Bitcoin. There's groups like Bottle Pay, which use the Bitcoin rails uh, for payments, which are, which is taking picking up in the UK and Europe. And I think you know some globally as well. Um, there's other 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 um, companies and other uh, networks that are growing out around the world. And we'll see those continue to evolve. Our view is that some will be industry specific that will deal with certain things like trade finance or other specific areas. Uh, and others will be more general consumer-led. Um, so we'll see how those things play out. But I think you're exactly right that the network effect is really important here. Yeah, that's the, um, uh, that's, that's, I'm learning about it. Like, you know, I only probably heard the words network effect maybe like 18 months ago during COVID. I was listening to a podcast out of Silicon Valley. Uh, and there was one of the VCs there who might've been an early investor in Facebook. And then I was listening to some of the work put out by these guys uh, in Silicon Valley. I think they are NFX and they've done some pretty, um, uh, you know, some research on, they've produced some research on network effects. It seems to me, and correct me if this is wrong, but it seems to me like it's still early in the game of understanding network effects in the same way that like when correlation models for CDO tranches picked up, People were like, oh wow, what's that? Right. It's like, how do you how do you start tranching stuff and then using math? Uh, and you've got a master's in finance, right? Like, how do you tranche up first loss and 12s, 22s, and three sevens and all that stuff? So I think optionality, you know, volatility, correlation. And now for me personally, you know, uh, having worked in those markets at the wholesale level, I think I think network effect is absolutely fascinating and i'm and uh and i think that bitcoin and these coins um you know that's a primary factor of of the value that people are getting out of them because if you trade it and i trade it and they trade it then we actually get liquidity right like if you don't have liquidity what do you have yeah, I think when you think about a market, um, you have buyers and sellers. And if you have too many buyers and not enough sellers, it's not very interesting. If, if you have too many too many sellers and not enough buyers, it's you know you also you need that balance there. And I think Web three is going to bring a lot of things, but I think for for your listeners, you know the the creative economy has been around for for a decade now. You know people using websites like Upwork, um, Fiverr.com. Uh, a lot of this is allowing people to sell what they're good at. Um, and you're no longer going to work for a big company and, and working in their graphic design company. You're saying, I can do this myself. And mm -hmm. I will, you know, the, those that are successful tend to do certain types of, of, um, of projects, but they do them really, really well. Uh, I mean, really look, I, 
I, I, I kind of look at that as uh, that type of person in a way is like you and me sitting in front of an FX terminal going, I'm going to do this. And I'm, and I've got liquidity on the other side that I would never have had before. So those, those holes, it's not just the screen. The screen is creating the liquidity that never existed. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're seeing buyers and sellers of, of skill sets now that you didn't have 20 years ago. Um, I think that Web3 is putting more power into the creators uh, and to some extent, the, the buyers of those services, because it's reducing the middleman. It's putting uh, sure. pressure on what these um, traditional data companies can charge. You know what, though? And you giving know, I Hang on. You know, I think that middleman thing, I'm not sure about that. I think that the traditional way of, you know, if the market wasn't getting larger, that'd be true. Right. But like when, uh, you know, when, when like the retail guys come into FX, like the guys at Cantor, Fitzgerald, NICAP, they don't care. Like that's not their market. Right. You're actually just adding more liquidity at the lower levels. Right. And then these people. So I tend to think of it as like, the market is growing in exponential ways that people didn't really understand or expect. Does, do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, but let me put this in a different uh, perspective. If you are, um, you know, you're a graphic designer sitting in the Philippines uh, and you're selling your wares around the world, you know, the old days you had to work through a big platform. That platform could take a big fee because they knew that you're not going to get any money from a, from someone sitting in, in Vancouver who needs to send Canadian dollars to your account in the Philippines. It just wasn't that effective. Sure. Um, and so, so Bitcoin and crypto allows the, a, a freer movement of money around the world. And then Web3 is gradually putting more power in the hands of both the, the graphic designer who sits in the Philippines and the buyer who is sitting in Vancouver. Mm. Um, and you're putting mm. more power into their hands and gradually, I think Web3 will make it more difficult for these giant data companies to monetize that data as effectively as, as the, the consumer and the individual has more control over their data. Um, how so as that, we move how do the, you see that working? You know, I think that Web3, a lot of that concept is it turns the traditional model on its head. Um, rather than, uh, you know, say an example of a car buyer, uh, you traditionally, if you call up um, 10 uh, car dealerships and say, I want to I want to buy a car, these guys will, at least in, the, in this where I live, they will overwhelm you with emails, phone calls. We can give you the best car for the lowest price. They won't give you that price until you show up and run them and try to you know, try to buy it. But the bottom line is all the negotiating power lies on their side. Um, there's a company out there right now that allows you to go out and say, listen, I want to buy a uh, a new Jeep Renegade, uh, and uh, there's a tokenization process where you will see that I am a qualified buyer. In other words, someone's already given me the financing, and I'm going to buy this car in the next week. Uh, mm. And you send that out to the 10, 10, uh, 10 dealerships; they have the opportunity to send something back, saying, "You know what? Rather than market to the the, the general consumer." I'm going to spend all my marketing dollars to try to get this guy to buy the car for me. And I'm going to put a price on it. And I'm going to tell him exactly what he, you know, what the process to buy it. And if need be, I'll deliver the car. But it's a different type of model because one, the, the buyer, the, the identity is not known, but you do know in a trustless way that is a qualified buyer. And I think that's what Web3 is going to continue to bring across the board um, to give, put the power back in the hands of the consumer uh, and then the buyer rather than have this sort of the data companies control all the data. Um, so it does have some big implications from, for some of the larger technology company out, companies out there. But I think if you're, you know, if you're sitting in small town um, Australia or somewhere else in Asia, um, this is a great thing. It puts more power in your hands. Mm -hmm. Well, Asia, I think from personal experience, I mean, we lag, this time zone lags California in terms of technology adoption and things like that, right? Like I worked on a startup in 2000 in Singapore and uh, you know, like the whole, you know, VC angel investment seed rounds, that language didn't even exist in this time zone for many years uh, after that. Um, so how do you see, um, 
the the um, uh, the crypto winter uh, kind of changing the time aspect of Web three developing. Do you think it's where do you see it over the next eighteen months, thirty six months? What do you think is going to happen with uh, with this crypto winter? People are calling it. Uh, good question. So you know, in the last um, really since January, we've seen major asset markets sell off. So the, the US NASDAQ, which tends to be uh, sort of the riskier um, market in the US uh, is down, I think around 30% year to date. Um, so this is one of the worst starts for the year ever uh, in, in, in US markets. Um, and, and crypto has been right there with it. You know, crypto, um, Bitcoin, I believe is hovering around $20,000 a coin. That's down from mid sixties uh, in November of last year. Um, total total locked value uh, total, total total value locked in crypto is down about seventy percent. Um, a lot of coins have lost a lot of their value. To me, this is a natural progression. You you need to have these these um, you know the market was extremely frothy uh, in in Q4 of last year. A lot of that froth is gone. Um, a lot of these ideas that perhaps should not have been funded in the first place may go by the wayside. Um, but this, the concept is still there. The value proposition is still there. So when, when coins come off, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of, of DeFi and crypto have used initial coin offerings as a way of funding their growth. So that's a little bit harder right now. Um, but let me just um, sort of summarize my views with the, um, there's a large uh, venture capital group out of San Francisco that raised just over $4 billion, uh, in January. And they've come out recently saying this will be the golden age of crypto investing. You know, prices have come down. Uh, the technology is still just as interesting as it was a year ago. Uh, and they've got a big war chest to yeah. put money to work. Yeah. So I think you're talking about Andreessen. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. And these guys are really smart. You know, they, they tend to be very savvy about timing and they're very savvy about the evolution of these types of, uh, of offerings. For what it's worth, as you know, they one of the leaders in the initial development of the web was, yeah. uh, was Netscape, which was, uh, yeah. you know, was Andreessen's first baby. Yeah, so that's an infrastructure play in my view, right? Like, you know, if you're gonna look at the web, <laughs> you need a browser, right? If you're gonna- Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you need that infrastructure. So um, if you could snap your fingers and solve one of the problems holding back the industry or your business within it, right? Uh, or the businesses that you're working on investing in and growing, right? Like the biggest problem that you're facing uh, on a shared basis across the industry. If you could just snap your fingers and be like, man, I'm, I solved that. I'm glad that's gone. How would you describe that problem? Great question. So, you know, I think that um, from where I sit, the biggest challenge uh, in sort of G7 or the larger countries in the world is the lack of regulatory clarity. Um, and I say this both in terms of regulation, but also tax. In the US, there's a lot of tax uncertainty. Uh, and to some extent, we, we have to work our way through this. But anyway, we look at it, it is a cost because it's a risk. Um, and you've seen a lot of big um, settlements recently uh, one of them was a hundred million dollar um, settlement uh, with BlockFi, uh, okay. one of the leaders in develop, in, in, you know, a great company in the U.S. Uh, that's, that's built out uh, in the lending and the borrowing space in crypto. Unfortunately, they got caught in this most recent uh, down down move uh, and had to take some outside capital, having to. It appears that they may have to to make some changes to the balance sheet. Um, but the bottom line is um, this regulatory uncertainty is time is expensive, takes a lot of time, uh, and it, it slows development around the world because no one wants to get in the uh, in the headlights of of a major regulator. In the U.S., we have a little yeah. bit more of an additional challenge, as you know, um, yeah. because we don't have a single regulatory authority like countries like the U.K., which have a FCA, which regulates all aspects of finance. In the U.S., we have the SEC, which regulates investment management. We have the CFTC, which regulates yeah. derivatives. Uh, we have the Federal Reserve, which regulates banks and bank products. Uh, and we have the comptroller of the currency, which it regulates right. federal banks. So I could go on and on. We also yeah. have 50 states, which also have their own rules. So, 
So I think that's the single biggest problem. And I would say that if there's a second um, challenge out there, we have a lot of really interesting stuff happening and not a lot, not enough developers. So we need more developers in this space, uh, especially in the DeFi space. Right. So confusion over the regulatory, um, over regulatory stuff is kind of a way to. Yeah. That. You know, I wouldn't use the word confusion because we're not confused. It's just mm -hmm. ambiguous. Okay. Uh, and, you know, even though you're, you're doing things by the books and, you know, as far as I could see, uh, BlockFi had a, great uh, regulatory team and legal team, they still found themselves on the wrong side of the SEC. Um, and so I think that you want to have more clarity. I think that, you know, the, the UK is really good at that. I think you're seeing more investment going into the UK. Yeah, right. Is, is London the, doing better when it comes to laying out regs than, uh, than the US? Yeah, so um, the UK is interesting because uh, having left Brexit, um, one, they, they've lost a lot of their own industry. You know, a lot of companies had to either uh, move out of the UK or reduce their investment in the UK because they effectively needed to be in the common market. Um, so they've moved, moved headquarters in some cases to Dublin or to Amsterdam, uh, and they've moved production to, uh, to mainland Europe or Ireland as well. And so it's, it's really meant that the UK has got to th think in a little bit more creative way. Um, they no longer have the baggage of having everything to be approved by the full EU government, so they can actually roll out regulations in a much more efficient way. So what we're seeing so far in the UK is a much more open-minded approach. Yeah. Let's let's put put out some um, some some uh, crypto-friendly and DeFi-friendly regulation. Um, they're in the midst of of rolling out some regulations around stable coins. Oh, yeah. I think this recent um, sell-off has has uh, highlighted that they need to protect the the retail investor. Um, but the UK is, is well positioned in the next next five years in terms of creating the right balance of a of strong regulatory environment, a regulated environment, but also one that is friendly to entrepreneurs and startups. Mm. Hey, so, you know, um, after I stopped trading currency options, uh, I went and did some work in the credit default swap market. Um, and uh, so I learned a little bit about the debt side of it and, you know, default and things like that, right? And you'd price default using yield uh, instruments. Yeah. When, I mean, I tend to think that, you know, that Bitcoin at the end of it all kind of is priced off the back of, of G7 currency defaults down the road. It's kind of like the, you know, the ultimate hedge, right? Billionaires going, I'll have some of that in case, you know, uh, there's a yard sale, so to speak. I mean, is that, um, does that, does that kind of hang in the back of your mind? Is that wrong to, because, you know, I think that one of the, one of the things that I have a hard time getting my head around is why a government would ever let any single currency, cryptocurrency get that big because then it's a competitor. Those are great, great points. So you've got a, good, a lot of, of, of really good questions in there. So let me start with yeah. sort of the, 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 um, the what, a, what crypto and, and Bitcoin um, are perceived to, to give you a hedge of um, or hedge, um, what, what risk you're hedging. And so I think that, you know, every government has a, a, um, a moral, there's a moral hazard that the leader of the government says, listen, we need new new roads, we need a new dam, we need a new great investment. So I'm gonna borrow a lot of money and we're gonna invest in this, let's give our country something great. Hmm. Sometimes it works, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, Belt and Road Initiative out of China Gosh. is a big commitment, right? It is a big bet. Um, and, and sometimes those things work great, sometimes they don't. Um, I'll use the example of Argentina. Uh, you know, after World War II, or actually before World War II, Argentina was one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Their GDP in 1915 was the same as Germany and France. They were one of the leading countries in the world uh, on the industrial side, on the trade side. Uh, in 19, uh, you know, currently, uh, they have seen about a 20-year fall in their, in their, um, their, their average um, per capita income. Uh, they have been in a disaster. Now you can, you know, you can point fingers at a lot of things, but the reality is, their government has borrowed a lot more money and spent a lot more money than they have, 
Uh, and as a result, it's deflated that currency. So ultimately, Bitcoin doesn't have that. You can't, there is no I'm with you. So to me, to me, in a way, in a, it sounds like you're saying that uh, Bitcoin and, and a cryptocurrency like that is a way to keep the, the government honest. Exactly. So it, it's you're not dealing with that moral hazard that the government may want to go out and borrow money for this really special project or just embezzle it, uh, which has happened through the years yeah, in many emerging, yeah. you know, many economies. Yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, some would say that perhaps that was one of the reasons Argentina is in trouble now. But the reality is that that moral hazard is there and Bitcoin removes that to some extent. Now, the question is, what is the beginning of that? You know, that, you know, what is what are the early uh, symptoms of a government that is not managing their their balance sheet right? Well, normally it's inflation. So mm -hmm. now that you've got inflation and quite aggressive inflation in the U.S. And, 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 and Europe and most of the world right now. So is that is, is your hedge working? Well, actually, it's not. So it doesn't. Well, always I, work I don't like actually that. I don't think inflation is bad at all right now at all. Right. Like, I mean, I, you know, I was born in 1963. I remember waiting in gasoline lines. Right. Like, you know, when uh, when interest rates were 18 percent. So, I, yeah. I mean, okay. I don't think inflation, I think inflation's nowhere near it where it could be. Is that wrong? So, you know, I guess it's all relative, right? So we've had, um, you know, we've had the 10-year below 1% in the U.S., so the, the, you know, the 10-year bond yielding below 1%. Um, and, you know, growing up, I always thought it was around 6 or 7%. So yeah, exactly. we've had very low rates and we've had very low inflation. And now we're getting inflation above 8%, 9%. Is it high inflation? Well, you know, you can argue both sides, but the reality is it's definitely a lot higher than we've been. Uh, and you got a generation of, of um, house buyers who have been trying to fund at two and three percent are now having to, to realize that, you know, those mortgage rates have doubled. So this is not a, a trivial uh, you know, change. But the bottom line is you've got inflation a lot higher and that the hedge of buying Bitcoin to avoid a the um, seeing your dollars inflate away or your pesos or your yen inflate away is not really working because Bitcoin's come down. So right now that hedge is not working, but you did bring up another interesting point on defaults. So yeah. I actually did my thesis um, in my gra in graduate school on modeling credit default risk, funny enough. Okay. So, and, and you know, uh, the concept of credit default swaps was a fascinating concept. Yeah. You know, one thing that perhaps wasn't highlighted enough in the, uh, in the way that those swaps are priced uh, is the, the fact that when you have a major meltdown in the economy, like we had in 07, 08, then the, the, where you buy your credit insurance from is also an issue. Um, and so a lot of people found, found out that the hard way. But the reality is, you know, insuring credit risk is something we've always tried to find a better way of doing. Now, let me just take us fast forward into in the last sort of six weeks. Yeah. So in the last six weeks, you've seen lenders. Uh, an example is Celsius. Celsius had a lot of borrowers in the crypto world. And they had a lot of, well, they referred to people as depositors, but they're not regulated as a normal bank is regulated. And so people were getting eight, nine, 10% on some deposits, what were called deposits, but they just recently said, as of a few weeks ago, you can't get your money back. So cannot. it looks like a, cannot. So it looks like a bank run. Now I don't, I can't speak um, for Celsius and I, this is what I've read in the press, but the reality is Celsius is, is not a DeFi lending protocol like a group like Aave or Compound where it's all automated they're effectively you know calling up customers saying listen you're you're you have a margin call you're holding bitcoin you know we've you've given us your bitcoin as collateral and we've lent you some dollars now bitcoin prices are falling you either need to add more bitcoin to your collateral or pay us back for our money and if you don't pay us back then we'll sell the collateral we have now, you know, a lot of risk management. In we know how that works, that, right? Yeah, I've been in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the reality is uh, when push comes to shove and assets are really falling, one, they're illiquid. They're hard to sell. Oh, yeah. And two, there's some challenges in working with your clients saying, listen, you're supposed to give us more collateral. Can you please call me back? Well, how did DeFi handle that? And decentralized finance is different because, you're dealing with software, you're dealing with code. So when you say, I wanna borrow a million dollars to buy a house, I'm gonna put two, put up $2 million of Bitcoin, right? So that goes into a smart contract. As soon as your, 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 your collateral starts dropping below pre-agreed levels, either you need to add more collateral 
or they're going to sell that. Uh, and what was interesting the last six weeks, as the market melted down, DeFi worked exactly like it was supposed to. If you had a loan on Aave, you either gave them more money or they liquidated it. And as far as I've seen, there's been no real issues there. DeFi seems to work well. Code is law versus the world of, of the, what I would call centralized finance or CFI, uh, which is the category of these sort of um, lenders like Celsius that really were lending in sort of a more or less, what, what I see is an unregulated space. So they were taking investor money and lending out um, investor, lending out money as well, but with collateral. And, and, and as we've seen, when push comes to shove, and you have a major market meltdown, you can't always liquidate that collateral. But the DeFi world seemed to do it pretty well. The, it, you know, as far, as far as I've seen, all these systems are working as they're supposed to, the protocols worked, and DeFi effectively is, is offering uh, investors like me a way of, of putting money to work and either giving me no credit, no, no credit risk or credit risk, which I understand and I can, I can manage. But which is liquid look at, in a way, which is actually liquid in a way. Yeah, I mean, DeFi is pretty well thought out. You know, when oh. when um, when you have a collateral call or a margin call for more collateral, you know, and the and the counterparty says we we don't have any more capital. If you have to liquidate, you need to liquidate. Right. You know, DeFi actually has a process where the liquidation happens fairly systematically, mm -hmm. uh, and and players in that market are paid to take those assets off your hand. Uh, and that's those, not that, a bad thing. Did you see, you did, did you have, I know you got probably five minutes. I'll just briefly mention, did you see that article in the FT today about, uh, about the LME with the nickel squeeze and how, uh, how they changed the rules? Yeah. I mean, you know, right, like that, yeah, they, that, that's not good market wise, right? Like, yeah. I mean, we all like the idea that uh, you give us the rules and we play, we play, we play by the rules and we know what the process is. Yeah. Um, you know, a year and a half ago, we had um, oil prices went negative. Well, that seems like a very bizarre thing, but it was effectively a squeeze and people had, they were long, they had to sell. And uh, bizarrely, they, the, the, you know, the futures contract went below zero. You think, well, how can that be? But every now and then you do need to adjust rules to ensure that you don't have these unusual um, price swings or volatility that, that will impact your long-term client base. But, you know, when I look at, at, at the process of how, you know, that DeFi is bringing to the, to, the, to the world of both automated market making, where you can go in and you can transact without having a market maker on the other side, or mm -hmm. where you can borrow and or lend money uh, in the currency of your choice and the uh, jurisdiction, well, DeFi is still working through some of the jurisdictions and some of the, the, um, the money laundering restrictions, but the reality is that the efficiency is there uh, mm -hmm. and we think that's here to stay. Uh, but the most important thing is that credit risk changes dramatically when you have a smart contract. Um, and you know, one of the advantages of DeFi is that what you do have is, is some risk around uh, hacking, which we do, we do see occasionally. We do have some risk around mistakes in code, which do we do see occasionally. But you don't have, at least what we see is you don't have settlement risk, you don't have counterparty risk, and you don't have credit risk in the, in the true DeFi sense. So we think this is a really new, uh, really unique world we're moving into. And the next five to 10 years is going to be fascinating. Well, it sounds to me like you're kind of taking the view that Andreessen has, which is the market's valuations have come way down. So it, it offers a lot more opportunity. And you probably saw in the newspaper, I think somebody wrote an article asking, you know, is uh, Sam, forgive me for getting his name not correct, Bankman Freed? Uh, is, he the next JP, is he the next J, J. Pierpont Morgan, right? Like... Is he just cornering this whole banking system? So, and it really is interesting seeing what he is doing. So um, FTX is, is, has, has done well uh, in the current market. They have a lot of very lucrative businesses that are creating a lot of cash. Hmm. And as companies have gotten into trouble, they have put their hand up and said, listen, we will provide capital for okay. fee." Mm -hmm. um, and so what we're seeing is that they're getting some very good value in the purchases they're making. Yeah. And, you know, when, when, you know, after the U.S. depression, 
uh, in the 20s and 30s, a lot of banks had to be sold off. There were a few groups that bought a lot of those banks, like JP Morgan, and did very, very well. So for the, when, you, when you have capital and others are, are going through difficult times or need liquidity, uh, there are some amazing values to be had. So I would agree. I think that there's a lot of smart plays being made. I think there's going to be more, more of these as, as we continue. Um, but I think you've got to keep your eye on the ball. I think you've got to realize that the value is perhaps not in pure coin prices mm. or, in, or in the price of daily price of Bitcoin, but in the utility that this, this, this new way of banking, new way of, of trading, new way of, of borrowing and lending brings to both the consumer, uh, the business, and, 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 and the, the way we transact globally. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think, uh, you know, in that using that network effect phrase, like finding the network effect value in the new ability to um, transact value back and forth in Web3 is kind of how I think of it. But I know you've got a call coming up here. I want to offer the last word to you in terms of, uh, you know, where you see things going or what uh, what your thoughts are. And I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about this. And I'd love to think that you might uh, come on again. We can continue the conversation. Yeah. So uh, first of all, Adam, it's a real pleasure to to, uh, to be on your show. Um, I'm very honored to uh, have a chance to offer my ideas and thoughts. In yeah. terms of, of, of closing uh, closing ideas, you know, I think we're on the cusp of a real new um, time for for um, the way that we interact globally, the way that we send and receive money. Um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this evolves. There'll be some great ideas. There'll be some bad ideas. There'll be some <laughs> some more big bankruptcies. Um, but the reality is, I think that um, when we speak again in two years or three years, we're going to see a dramatically different way of of, uh, of of transacting, of making payments, receiving money. And I think it's going to be really exciting for us to all watch. So, uh, again, a pleasure to be on your show. If any of any of your listeners want to reach out, feel free to share my details in your notes. Uh, always happy to have a conversation. I look forward to the uh, the next 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 time. That sounds perfect. Yeah, I will. Uh, I, your details will be on there and I'm looking forward to uh, expanding, continue the conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. That's great. Thanks, Adam. Thanks.